Good evening, brothers and sisters and Bereans. I hate that I started that. Like, I feel like I know I have to say it every time because then it's just not right if I don't say it. So I, I'm sorry if you don't like it, but now I just feel naked without saying that. So hello, brothers and sisters and Bereans. Um, we are, y'all, we have three weeks left in this study. I'm really, really excited. This has been really trying for me. This is, I'm writing this from scratch. I'm pulling in a lot of sources, a lot of commentary um, from different areas. I created these outlines based on some of these studies and some of these commentaries. Um, and it's just been really trying for me. And um, it's evolved as I've gotten, I've kind of honed in on what I wanted to do really kind of around the minor prophets, I started getting a really, you'll notice in the slides that I, I, I'm starting to, they're starting to all look alike. It's because I kind of honed in on what I wanted to do. So um, if I teach this again next semester, for those of you who are local, I'm probably going to redo a lot of the slides and maybe even some of the outlines in the beginning to make them all concise and um, parallel with each other. So anyways, um, we have covered all of the Old Testament. We did the Torah. We did the historical books, part one and two. We did the poetic books, blah. Um, we did the, sorry, God, forgive me. Your poetic books are beautiful. I struggle to love poetry. Um, we did the major prophets and the minor prophets. That was an exhausting one, doing all 12 of the minor prophets in one day. Whew. But we did it. Um, we have done all four gospels, three of Sinatra, Three of the synoptic gospels, four gospels total. We did Acts. We did Paul's interpretive letters, which were um, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So basically, with Paul's letters, he's writing to the churches of these cities, right? Okay. So, um, which one was it? Uh, was it? Ephesians that also was shared. Yeah, I think it was Ephesians. They share their letters with local churches because um, Laodicea was a, a local church to Ephesus, um, which is interesting because it's those are two letters that Jesus writes to specifically in um, John's book of Revelation. So they shared them, but that's what Paul is writing to is, are these churches as a whole? Um, we're going to wrap that up with First and Second Thessalonians, where he's writing to the church in Thessalonica. But then um, the letters start to change, and he's writing to Timothy, who is like a spiritual son to him. He is, Timothy is probably the closest person to him um, out of all of his brothers in Christ that were fellow evangelists and church planters. Um, and then we have where he wrote Titus and um, he wrote to Titus, he wrote to Philemon. Um, and so that's kind of, it's, it's sort of changing from writing to the church to writing to the pastors over these churches, right? So if you have the outlines, um, excuse me, I'm trying to adjust my mic. If you have the outlines, um, you'll see that um, this week. Well, first off, we've got 22 slides, which is a lot, but I'm covering quite a bit. I'm going to camp on some of the end times prophecy. 
Um, and I'm also going to camp on some of the priesthood, which is something that I feel like is a little bit neglected in the church. It's not something that you'll typically hear from the pulpit, um, which is why I like to go deeper in my studies. Um, but I um, had someone, Stephanie, in our class specifically asked about Paul's journeys because it's a little bit confusing um, the way I had it worded last week about Paul's first journey and his second journey and where was he in these journeys because some of the churches that he's writing to versus the churches that he's writing from one time he's writing from Rome, but that's not the same as that's not the same time period as his letter to the Romans. He's writing to Rome, the Romans from Corinth. He's writing from Rome to Timothy. Um, so there's just those are kind of some things to keep in mind. Um, I have a because I'm a visual learner, and I'm gonna be honest. None of the stuff comes supernaturally to me. It's not. <laughs> I need to learn a different word. It doesn't come very naturally to me. Um, the timeline and geography and all of these historical nitty gritty stuff, that's not something that tends to come naturally to me. So um, I added his missionary journeys, that how long it was, the letters from the missionary journeys, um, where it's recorded um, in scripture and what time that this occurred. So this will kind of help give you a little bit of an idea structurally. Um, technically, Galatians would be first um, if we're going chronologically by time. Um, if Galatians, the book of Galatians was written in his first missionary journey. Um, then we have First and Second Thessalonians, which we're about to cover now. This was written in his second missionary journey. Then we have the letter to the Corinthians um, and to the Romans. Um, and that was on his third missionary journey. And then there's a fourth missionary journey that we're going to discuss that's not mentioned in Scripture because Acts just goes to 28 um, where he is under house arrest. We don't know anything about after anything that happens. There's likely a missionary journey that happened after that um, before he is killed um, so or martyred. Um, so anyways, and then that's where the majority of his letters come out of is Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, um, his very last letter. So um, we're going to cover that as we go. Sorry, y'all. I'm super, super tired for some reason. I should have grabbed a coffee. Um, okay, First Thessalonians. So this is where we're going to kind of camp on end times prophecy. This is something that um, you'll hear a lot about the rapture talk from this book. Um, the reason for that is because a lot of the Thessalonians were confused about the second coming of Jesus. So this is kind of what Paul addresses in this. So 1 Thessalonians obviously is written by Paul. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica around A.D. 49 to 51 um, from Corinth during his second missionary journey. Um, so you're going to see a little bit of discrepancy between the first slide um, where all the years are and the times that I have. That's because they're all debated, but they're all within a two to three year time frame. So to me, that doesn't really matter. Um, so anyways, um, so he wrote to the Thessalonians from Corinth during his second missionary journey recorded in Acts 18. Paul and his companions Silas and Timothy had established the church in Thessalonica, but they were forced to leave due to heavy persecution of the church, um, of them, um, and of the gospel in the surrounding area. Okay, this was not really a welcomed, Christianity was not a welcomed thing, um, and it kind of is 
sobering to even think about that them going um, and how I mean, obviously, every single disciple was martyred besides John and John still faced heavy, heavy persecution and was actually exiled during the time of his death. Paul was martyred um, and killed. Um, So there's just a lot to consider and remember that this was just these were not welcomed messages, the gospel of Jesus. Um, So they were heavily persecuted there and that's why they had to leave so um, Thessalonica was a city of privileged status in the capital of Macedonia it was located on a natural harbor north of Corinth and Athens to give you a little bit of geographical detail there Um, Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica once the time had passed from the persecution just to check on the church there and this report led him to write this first letter he writes to them to restore their hope which has been tested by the unexpected deaths in the church he reassures them that the dead and the living believers will be safe at the return of Jesus. He reassures them of the motive of himself and Silas and Timothy as preachers of the gospel, teaching them that persecution is normal for believers. Basically, well, I'll go into this in just a second, but basically they were facing such heavy persecution that they thought that this was the time of tribulation. So it was really confusing them. They were experiencing a lot of death. They were experiencing a lot of persecution and they thought this is it. This is it. Um, So, the whole theme of this letter is about the return of Jesus and that when he return, returns, the dead who have believed in Christ will rise first and will join the living to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, so this is different than the second coming because we're not meeting Jesus in the air in the second coming. In the second coming, we're coming behind him. So this whole idea, this is where a lot of mid-tribs and post-tribs get the idea that there is no rapture because I don't know if many of you guys know this. I think this is such an interesting fact that people don't discuss in the church, and I don't know why. When Jesus was resurrected, when the veil was torn in the temple, when he died, essentially, when the veil was torn in the temple and there was a a huge earthquake dead bodies got up and walked away of the saints and it's like okay what like what nobody got why wouldn't they get why would they just add that little snippet of detail that there's zombies essentially walking around and we don't know first off who it was we do know that they were probably jewish believers um because they were resurrected. I mean, they wouldn't be resurrected if they if they weren't in the faith like Abraham had and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But who were they? Where did they go? Did they die again? Did they go up in Christ's ascension? Um, so anyways, we will you'll hear this the dead in Christ will rise, which is what Thessalonians talks about, and then will come and then and me, then the, the dead in Christ will rise first. They say that that's already happened, that that happened at the death and resurrection of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. I disagree. I think that those were people before Christ, those who were in the faith before Christ, because it talks about Jesus has the keys. That's why Jesus died for three days. He has the keys to death and Hades, and we know that he has the keys to death and Hades because of Revelation 1. Okay, he holds those keys. I believe because he received those keys, he he released those from Sheol, which is the grave, 
those who were in the grave before and their bodies, they were reunited with their bodies. Now their spirits were within the bosom of Abraham. We know that from the story of Lazarus, but their bodies were not. And I believe that he is allowing their bodies through his death and resurrection to come up first. But that doesn't count those who died after his resurrection, those who died with the atonement of Jesus. And I believe that I personally believe that this is what Paul was talking about in Thessalonians because it's a future tense event event that he's warned he's warning them when Christ returns the dead who have believed in Christ will rise first and will join the living to meet the Lord in the air some th- say that's already happened some say well this is the tribulation saints that died it doesn't to me it doesn't quite make sense in context okay so the anyways, after, I mean, ultimately, it's splitting hairs, um, and it's ridiculous to argue about it because it's just conjecture about how we are interpreting scripture. Um, anyways, unbelievers, um, after his return in the air, not on earth, um, unbelievers will experience God's wrath while the believers receive salvation. In preparation for that day, believers are called to be home, holy and blameless. God, who is faithful, will produce in them the holiness that he requires. Okay, this whole idea goes to the virgins, to be holy and blameless, awaiting his return. Okay, it goes along with the ketchupa. I'm going to skip this. I need to um, rearrange these. Um, sorry, I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Um, so the ketchuba, we talked about this before. The ketchuba is the Jewish wedding, the betrothal period where a groom, this is a Jewish tradition. Okay. The groom purchases the bride. Okay. He, then the bride is set apart awaiting for the groom during that time where they are set apart. The groom has gone to the father's house to prepare a room for her. You know that song, there's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. That's where that song comes from, that Jesus in his ascension has gone back to the father to prepare a place for his bride, just as the Jewish groom, bridegroom, goes to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride, because that's what they did back then, okay? While he's gone, the bride prepares for his imminent return. She stays in her wedding garments. She keeps her wedding garments white and clean. And this is the process of sanctification that we are experiencing now. Okay. We are making ourselves holy and blameless through sanctification of the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves ready, awaiting for his return. We don't know when his return will be. Neither did the brides in the Jewish weddings. They did not know when the groom was returning. There was a huppah, a surprise gathering where the groom would return. He would come with his bride, his he, as a bridegroom with his groomsmen. They would blow loud trumpets. It was this really exciting celebration period. The bride was thrilled, excited. She come out waiting. She come out with oil in her lamp, with her lamp, and meet the groom half way he didn't come to her house she met him halfway which represents the groom meeting the bride in the air halfway not the full second coming okay then he takes her back to his father's house they go up to the upper room where there is a sec yo <laughs> sorry i'm just thinking about this as a like a real bride there's a seven day marriage supper where the bride and the groom stay up in the upper room and consummate their wedding together for seven days. Can you imagine 
I mean, in in real life with your groom, seven days, people are down below um, feasting for the wedding supper. Um, there's a marriage feast that's going on. Um, while the bride and groom is up there consummating the wedding, they're becoming one. They're becoming an entire full unit. At the end of that seven-day period, the bride who was veiled when she met the groom comes out with the groom leading her unveiled. And they are now one in spirit and in flesh. That is exactly what I believe Jesus is doing with us. He has gone back. He's purchased us with his blood as the kinsman redeemer. He was willing and able and um, ready to purchase us. And he purchased us with his blood. Um, we are set apart and sanctified. He's gone back to prepare a place in his father's house for us. And um, we are preparing and awaiting his imminent return. Um, there's going to be a hoopah surprise rapture for the bride of Christ. And we are going to go for the seven day marriage supper to be one with him. This, I believe represents a seven year tribulation period where we will not be there for any of it. We will be watching it all happen from the mezzanine, becoming one with our bridegroom. And then we will come back at the end of that marriage supper, which revelation literally means the unveiling. We will be unveiled with our groom coming back behind him for the final wedding feast. So I think it's really kind of cool. A few different things with the rapture and the second coming. In the rapture, there is a translation of believers. The dead rise and the living meet with them in the air. In the second coming, there is no translation of believers. In the rapture, there's translated saints that go to heaven. In the second coming, translated saints return to earth. In the rapture, earth is not judged. There's no mention of judgment when he comes back in First Thessalonians. Um, and in the second coming, earth is judged in Revelation 19. In the rapture, it's an imminent, it's a hoopah gathering. It's a, it, there's no signs to identify when the groom is coming. In the second coming, it um, follows definite and predicted signs. We've got seven seals. We've got seven trumpets. We've got seven bowls. We have predicted to the very day when the second coming will be based on Daniel and based on um, the the two witnesses in Revelation 10 or 11. I think it's 11. Maybe it's 11. I don't know. Don't hold me on that. I'm pretty sure it's Revelation 10 or 11. Specific days mentioned until to count down into the second coming. Um, we have where the rapture is not at all mentioned in the Old Testament. And that would make sense because Israel missed it the first time. The rapture isn't for Israel. Um, the second coming is for Israel. Um, and that is predicted in the Old Testament. Um, that's also why Israel missed Jesus the first time because they expected the second coming is when God, Jesus, brings his kingdom down from heaven to earth and reigns from Jerusalem. That's why they didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah because he didn't do that. Um, in the rapture, believers, um, it's for believers only. In the second coming, it affects all men on the earth. Um, in the rapture, 
um, it's held before the day of wrath and the second coming, it concludes the day of wrath and the rapture. There is no reference to Satan at all. And the second coming, Satan is bound at the bottomless pit and the rapture. He comes for his own and the second coming. He comes with his own and the rapture. He comes in the air and the second coming. He comes down to earth and the rapture. He claims his bride and the second coming. He comes with his bride and the rapture. Only his own see him, but in the second coming, every eye shall see and every knee will bow down and confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, the whole idea about the rapture, I think, is held in the parable of the ten virgins, which is what they were doing. They were waiting for the huppa, the surprise gathering, okay? So the parable of the ten virgins says that the kingdom of heaven will be like the ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us or for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready, went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came out also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. So they came to go to the seven-day wedding supper, and they did. They couldn't go in. He said, I do not know you. They did not keep oil in their lamp. The oil there is very, very key because it represents the Holy Spirit. You have five virgins who were wise and brought extra oil because the bridegroom was delayed. Five of them did not and were not wise. Um, and let's see. Hang on, let me find it. Where would it, where did it go? He says, at the very end, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, this is not Jesus speaking. This is Matthew speaking. Watch, therefore. Well, technically, it's Jesus speaking to giving this kingdom parable, essentially, although it's not technically a parable. Um, Jesus is telling his disciples, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this is something that I've always kind of wrestled back and forth with, that there is a difference between the bride of Christ and the church as a whole body. Um, and I think that a lot of this will come in toward the end with apostasy. I think that um, Revelation 2 and 3 are very telling with certain struggles in the church and um, not having a repentant heart and seeking after God. Um, and so I think that these are very telling that maybe not keeping enough oil in your lamp is not repenting and following in the Holy Spirit. Um, 
And I, I think it's a faith thing. I don't think it's a works thing, but I also think it's a faith walking in the faith and not walking in the sin kind of thing. So it's just something to chew on. We'll get into more detail about the apostasy and what that might look like toward the end of the time, end of time. But notice that five of the virgins said they could not enter into the wedding supper, the seven day wedding supper. They weren't cast out into outer darkness where there was gnashing of teeth. They weren't. They were still in the kingdom but they could not enter into the wedding supper. So I think that this could represent the tribulation saints. It's people who missed it the first time. But this is just my speculation. All right. Thessalonians. Um, First Thessalonians, the way that it's broken down is basically into two different sections, um, one through three and four through five. So you've got the introduction in chapter one, one through four, and then you have these personal reflections in chapters one through three. Um, Paul reflects on the church's condition, their reception of the gospel, and their reputation in chapter one. In chapter two, um, half of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the, um, he reflects on the pastor's conduct of the church. And he specifically goes into his preaching and his life. Um, and then we have where Paul reflects on his concern for the church. And this is in chapter 2, 13 through 3, 13. And he's, his concern about their faithfulness and his concern about their continued growth in the spirit. So then we have instructions for the pastor uh, for the pastor in chapter four through five, um, he specifically addresses concern about sexual purity, walking in holiness in chapter four, one through eight. Then he talks about this prophetic urgency in chapters four, nine through 18, where it talks about walking in love, walking in diligence, walking in hope, thinking about the kingdom, not being of the world, but in the world with the kingdom mind. Um, And then the last chapters in chapter five, where it specifically talks about um, the pastor's instruction to be balanced um, with that kingdom and prophetic urgency, staying awake and alert, walking in the light and walking in obedience. This is keeping oil in your lamp. Watch, therefore, for the return. Let's see. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour of the return walking in the light, which is in the Holy Spirit, not quenching the Holy Spirit, but allowing the Holy Spirit to shine through to light your path, and then walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Very, very telling stuff, very convicting stuff. Um, But let's move on to 2 Corinthians. Um, So shortly after Paul wrote his first letter to 1st, did I say Corinthians? I don't know what I'm talking about. I meant Thessalonians. Um, Okay, so 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians, y'all. I need some coffee so bad. If you're in Leland, bring me some coffee. Okay, Um, 2 Thessalonians. So shortly after writing his first letter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul receives a report, and this is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, that the Thessalonian church has accepted the strange claim that the day of the Lord has come. Paul sends this second letter around the same time of 49 to 51 AD, likely from the Corinth, again, um, the Corinth church. Um, the audience, so Paul writes a second letter to the Thessalonians to reassure those that were terrified that the day of the Lord had already come. They're like, holy crap, we missed it. This is it. This is it. This is it. <laughs> it reminds me of the office where um, Pam's 
I don't even know if she was actually in labor, but he's like, Michael's running around like crazy. This is it. This is, this is basically what the, the Thessalonians were doing. Um, so they were terrified that the day of the Lord had come. The persecution that they faced likely fueled their confusion about the end times. And he also wanted to address the problem with the church members who refused to um, earn their own living. So we have, y'all, there's some lazy people at this church. They're just not doing it. They're not working. Um, and this is putting a strain on the church during that time. Some of the Thessalonians may have stopped working to wait and proclaim the second coming of Jesus. Um, but more than likely, others were exploiting the generosity of the wealthier believers in order to avoid work. Um, so um, with second second Thessalonians in contrast with the warm and emotional tone of first Thessalonians second Thessalonians includes a lot of harsh commands as Paul addresses bad behavior and bad thinking however there's a swing back and forth between reproof and encouragement which is a, which is good because if it's just reproof man that's a lot of what Galatians was about um and it's, it's tough. It's a tough pill to swallow. So the main theme of this letter is that Jesus's return will be specifically preceded by apostasy or rebellion by the appearance of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. This is mentioned in chapter 2, 3. His second coming will bring defeat of this rebellious world leader. Okay, so let's cover this real quick. I'm, I'm pulling in some slides from my Revelation class. So... Paul says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by, by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter to, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Stop believing everything that you hear. It's not true is what he's saying. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless rebellion has come first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, again, you know, this is why this whole idea, you have all these crazy ideas, especially those of you who follow me on TikTok, you know that it drives me nuts, where people are like, the Antichrist isn't a person, it's a governmental system, and the mark of the beast isn't an actual mark, it's what you think and what you do, it's your thought and your action. Y'all, the Bible is this beautiful book that's pretty specific when it's talking in figurative language and when it's using metaphorical language. This is not metaphorical language. This is talking about an actual person who sits in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. Okay? This is talking about the Antichrist. This will happen three and a half years into tribulation um, where he sits and this is called, this is often called the abomination of desolation that you'll read in Matthew as well. Um, so he says this, so first there has to be a rebellion that comes first, which is the apostasy, a falling away from the church, a falling away from beliefs. Then the son of lawlessness, lawless, lawlessness, the antichrist is revealed. Okay. Then Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, 
I told you about these things and you know what is retraining him now so that he may be revealed in this time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And my goodness, no, this is not talking about eating pork. No, this is not talking about the Sabbath. The lawlessness that it's, he's specifically talking about is sexual immorality, idolatry, fornication, adultery, drunkenness, debauchery. Just go through, search out lawlessness in the New Testament and see what Paul has to say about that. Okay, he's very specific about what lawlessness is. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way and then... The lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Okay, so let's just think about this for just a second. Okay, so someone is restraining the man of lawlessness, okay, until he is out of the way. I believe that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit in the church or the bride of Christ the man of lawlessness is being restrained until we are out of the way and until the Holy Spirit is out of the way because the Holy Spirit will go with us during this age of grace, okay? And he will do so until it's out of the way. And then after we are out of the way, after the Holy Spirit is out of the way, the lawless one, the lawless one will be revealed and Jesus will kill him with his breath and bring him to nothing with his appearance. There is no battle of Armageddon. There's no fight. Jesus breathes on him and his appearance binds Satan up. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. And I'm pretty sure in Revelation 19, Jesus sends an angel to do it. He's like, hey, go do this. And he does. And he's able to. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is referring to non believers. I hear so many times, so many things on TikTok, so many people getting up talking about a strong delusion over the church and over believers. No, no, that's not what this says at all. It says that a strong delusion, deception are for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth of God's word and so be saved. So God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This is not referring to believers. So we've got to start calling this stuff out and stop letting people take things out of context. So this rebellion, this apostasy, um, this is from my study in Jude. Apostasy is a process of falling away from the truth. These are the people whose seed fell on the hard soil, the thorny soil, and the rocky soil. The three different soils on the hard soil, the birds picked up the seed and took it away immediately, representing just the, the gospel falling on the ears and it just bounces off. They don't even hear it. It, it doesn't even stick. It rolls right off of them. Then you've got the seed that falls on the rocky soil. It springs up quickly, 
but when the sun comes out, they wither away. Okay, this is where people receive the gospel. And they're like, yeah, 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 I believe, I believe. And then they do nothing afterwards. It's not even a few weeks before they just completely fallen back into their old ways. They don't have a transformed heart. They are not regenerated new beings. And then you have the seed. This is the harder one to spot. And this is the hardest apostasy to, to witness of all. This is the seed that falls amongst the thorny soil. It's got good soil. It grows up. But the thorns of life choke them out. So when things get hard, when persecution comes... They cannot withstand the torture and they give up. These are the three types of apostasy that we see, that we will see with the falling away, a great rebellion, people who we thought were believers. This is what this, that's what that represents. It's a departure from the faith. It is an unwillingness to endure sound doctrine. They are filled with false teachers, damnable heresies. We're seeing that with the New Age movement. We're seeing that with some of the Hebrew Roots movement, not all of it, because I do have some friends who um, are part of the Hebrew Roots movement, and I love them dearly, and I do believe that they are completely saved. But I do believe that there are, they would also admit that there are some extremists out there that say that you cannot be saved apart from the Torah which is just not true. Um, okay, so part of the apostasy is that they enter on the wrong path, they run righteously down that path, and then they path, and then they perish at the end. So I'm going to keep moving on. There's more, there's more there, but I know that we're pushing it on time. So the whole outline of Thessalonians is that um, we've got the introduction in chapter 1, 1 through 2, and then we've got these three. It's kind of broken into three sections. You've got encouragement amidst the persecution, enlightenment about prophecy, and exhortation about the Christian living. So with the encouragement um, amidst persecution, this is chapter 1. He talks about thankfulness, kingdom-minded encouragement, and prayerful encouragement. Then with the enlightenment about prophecy in chapter 2, he encourages... Um, amidst troubles that they're going through because they are going through so much persecution. They think that they are in the end times. They are not. Then we have the apostasy labor pains, what it's going to look like as we approach the end times. This is what I was reading through, what that is going to look like, um, the rebellion. And then steadfast encouragement um, through that time. Then we have an exhortation of Christian living with prayer and with discipline of the disorderly. And then we have... Um, in chapter 3, and then we have the conclusion in verses 16 through 18. So, moving on. Whew, take a breath. Take a drink. Shut your back. We're moving on to First Timothy. All right, y'all, I love Timothy. Timothy is really, really, really special. Paul writes this letter to Timothy around AD 62 to 64 during his fourth missionary journey, not recorded in Acts. This is likely when he came to Rome and was going to try and use Rome as a base to project into Spain and never got to completely com complete that mission, essentially. Um, so this trip took place after the events described in Acts between the time of Paul's first and final imprisonment. Paul is writing from an unknown location to Timothy. Um, so Timothy was Paul's co-worker, brother, and spiritual son. There's a reference to him in 1 Corinthians 4.17 where he talks about his tenderness for um, Timothy. Um, Paul writes to Timothy about issues in the church in Ephesus. False teachers are, so specifically that was a church Timothy was over for the most part was the church in Ephesus. I think he traveled back and forth to different ones, but at the time he was in Ephesus. Um, we know, 
We know that even just a decade later, when Jesus had the letter to Ephesus, um, they were the ones that neglected their first love. They had forsaken their first love in the pursuit of doctrinal purity. So they had basically become legalists. And that was a big deal. That's what Jesus is um, addressing in the church to Ephesus um, in chapter two. And so we're going to see a lot of that, that that's kind of what Timothy is dealing with here as well. Their false teachers are the main cause of this letter. Their teaching include incorrect assumptions about the law. Um, not allow, like not allowing marriage and certain foods. Um, there are other false teachings include theories over theories over solid truth. And my goodness, that is super prevalent today is all about theories and conjectures and not about the truth of scripture. Um, and you, for, you forsake your first love in the process of doing that. Um, this can lead to arrogance and greed. Those whose lives are not shaped by the gospel have turned away from the faith. So the whole theme of First Timothy is that the gospel leads to practical, visible changes in the life of the believer. The true gospel, in contrast to the false teaching, must and will always lead to godliness, which is not what their false teaching was doing then. Um, true Christianity is shown in the life sh- lifestyles shaped by the gospel, is what Paul is referencing in this particular letter. So, 1 Timothy is broken down basically in 1, chapter 2 and some of 3, chapter 3 and some of 4, and chapter 5 and 6. Four different sections. So, we have the charge concerning sound doctrine in chapter 1. The teaching of the sound doctrine, thanksgiving, and then Timothy's responsibilities. Um, then we have the general instructions considering, concerning the church where we have the practice to prayer, instructions for women in their church, qualification for church officers, which is for bishops and deacons. Um, I'm going to just kind of gloss over the instruction for women in their church because it kind of gets into that whole argument of egalitarianism and complementarianism and a woman's role in the church. And I think that this scripture can sometimes be particularly weaponized against women, um, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, I tend to lean more toward complementarian and that I think that we do have separate but equal roles. And I know not everyone is going to agree with that. And that's fine. We don't have to agree. Um, But for this particular thing, he's addressing what's happening in the church of Ephesus. And in the church of Ephesus, there was a lot of paganism that pagan converts where there are priestesses who would lead their congregation in the pagan church with sexual immorality and some of those types of things were leaking into the church and the women at that time just could not be trusted in any type of leadership role with the men because of what they were coming from so when Paul was talking about the women being silent in the church I do believe a lot of that is probably cultural, but I also believe that I'm going to probably get in trouble for saying this, but generally women are not respected in high leadership roles by men. They're just not. I don't think that that's necessarily a cultural thing. I think that that's just the way that it is. I have lots of men who won't sit in my class and that's fine. Like I don't need, you don't have to be in my class. If you don't want to learn from me. Don't learn from me. That's fine. Um, I have a lot of men that want to sit in my class and I don't think that I'm in sin for teaching. 
Um, but I also don't want to be a, a lead pastor and I never, my goodness, oh, I do not want that kind of responsibility. So anyways, that's kind of where that whole idea comes from. Um, I'm going to keep moving on though. Um, then we have where Paul gives advice for Timothy, um, Paul's purpose in writing this letter, his warning of apostasy in the church and exercising godliness. And then we have instructions that he gives concerning members of the church. So this is where we'll find maintaining proper relationships with others, widows, elders, servants, teachers motivated by greed, the man of God and the rich. Um, concerning all different types of members. So if you want to track that down on your own, you're welcome to. And then we have the conclusion in chapter 20 and 20 verses 20 and 21. So, and then we have Timothy's final letter, Timothy to second Timothy. This, this letter kind of broke me when I was at Panera preparing all of this. I did not realize that this was Paul's final letter that we have record of. I also didn't realize that this was really like his, death letter. Um, so it's kind of sad that we are essentially watching this era come to an end. This is his last letter that we have record of, and he's kind of at this place of brokenness and sadness, um, which makes me sad because he was such a pillar for spreading the gospel. Um, he really projected so much of it forward, um, and set a good foundation of moving even further to the ends of the earth. Um, and he sets a foundation for just the churches in general. My goodness, 13 letters that we have. Um, just really cool. So Paul writes a second letter to Timothy during his second and final imprisonment in Rome shortly before his death. This imprisonment was after the imprisonment recorded in Acts 28, probably around 64 to 65 A.D., um, though some would place it as late as 67 because that was right around his death um, was in 67 AD. So expecting that his death would come soon, Paul wrote this final farewell letter to Timothy, who was at Ephesus, urging him to sit, stand firm and asking him to come and visit him one last and final time. Um, I can't even imagine what that, that last final visit was like for them. We can't, we can't even fathom that, you know, we have our mentors, um, our spiritual mentors and just knowing that they're writing this letter, like, listen, I'm in prison. It's coming soon. I just can't imagine. So several people, um, at this point had abandoned Paul while he had been in prison. Several others, um, were away on assignments. So during this time, Paul's memories of Timothy and, and his sincere devotion are particularly touching. Knowing that Paul will be dying soon, Paul gives Timothy a bold, clear call to continue in the gospel despite suffering. Paul encourages Timothy to continue in faithfulness, and he even offers his own life as an example for Timothy to follow, which is saying a lot. But Paul, if anyone could do it, Paul was a person um, to do that. Um, Paul asked Timothy to visit him for one final time and bring his books and parchment so that he can keep studying and writing up until the very end, which is just beautiful. So many people are like, you know, I, I can't tell you, um, whenever I was, um, teaching at one of my last churches in the women's ministry, we could hardly get anybody to serve. And a lot of the women were like, nope, I did that. That was for a time. I'm done now. I'm retired. I'm not doing that anymore. I hope I never get like that. I hope I never get to the point where I'm tired 
of studying God's word. I'm tired of teaching God's word, which is my gift. I hope I'm not at a place where I get tired of serving God. Um, Paul certainly did not. So, um, Second Timothy can be broken down into three different sections where we have the exhortation of steadfast service, the exhortation of sound doctrine, and the exhortation to come quickly. So the exhortation for steadfast service is in 1.6 through 2.26, where we have he exhorts them to serve with zeal and courage, to serve with steadfastness and loyalty, to share the truth boldly with others, to endure the hardships that are to come, and to serve with diligence. Um, what a great what a great chapter to go back through um, when you're starting to lose joy in serving others. And then he has an exhortation for sound doctrine in chapters 3 through 4 5. Um, he exhorts Timothy to hold fast to sound doctrine for the perilous times that are to come. He exhorts Timothy to remember Paul's examples. He exhorts Timothy to abide in the scriptures and to preach the word of God. And then the last exhortation was for him to come quickly. That's in chapter 4, 6 through 18, um, where Paul is nearing his end and he has requests for his books and his parchment. Um, and then we have the conclusion. And that's kind of his last letter. And it's just sad. Um, but we're going to keep moving on into Titus. So Titus, um, is kind of like my first love in the new Testament. Titus is one of the very first books that I ever did a super deep study on in the new Testament. Um, I, in my last church, they sent me to Georgia for this. It was basically like a, a big event about how to lead women's Bible studies, but it was all about the word and it taught you how to dig into the word and it taught you how to read the author and create an outline. Basically everything that I'm doing for y'all, I learned at this event and Titus was my first one to study. So I really like, I have a tender spot for Titus. Um, so Paul wrote this letter to his coworker and brother in Christ, Titus, this letter was probably written on Paul's fourth mission around A.D. 62 to 64 and between his first imprisonment in Acts 28 and his second imprisonment not mentioned in Acts. His location is unknown. Paul is instructing Titus on how to lead the churches on the island of Crete. So Crete is right around the, the island of Patmos. It's a little bit closer to the shore, I think, or maybe it's south. I think it's south. The Crete, Crete islands were really big islands, and they were south of the island of Patmos where John was exiled to. Um, so this is where Titus is leading. The churches on this island were likely founded by Paul. Paul had recently completed a journey to Crete. He had left Titus there to teach the new churches. This is mentioned in Acts 14, 21 through 23. Um, false teaching was already a problem in this church. And um, it probably would have been welcomed by the Cretans um, because they were known for the ancient world for immorality. So um, this is already kind of part of the culture, right? So this false teaching was welcomed. It's kind of like new age in our culture is what's welcomed. This, this type of false teaching of the new age and manifesting these types of things. It's well, it's absolutely welcomed by our culture. So these are things to kind of keep an eye on. Um, this is kind of what Titus is, is talking about, but this is more about immorality. Um, 
the content of the false teaching isn't fully um, explained in the letter to Titus, but there appears to be significant Jewish elements to the teaching. There are opponents from the, quote, circumcision party that's mentioned, and they are interested in, quote, Jewish myths, which is probably a lot of what Paul was talking about in Second Timothy, about holding on to theories and not sound doctrine, not the truth of God's word. Um, and maybe even perhaps a ritual purity, which isn't in and of itself bad, but it is abused. Um, while they taught ritual purity, they lived in a way that proved that they did not know God. So you can remain a virgin. You can go through and be like, I am not, I'm going to be a virgin. I'm going to be sexually pure, but really not even know God. What's the motive of that? Is it to get people to know? Like if you're declaring it from the rooftop, your motive's already corrupt, you know? Um, so in dealing with the false teaching, Paul also provides Titus with a portrait of what a healthy church looks like. So the whole theme of the letter is that the unbreakable link between faith and practice, belief and behavior. This is where that whole argument comes. You are saved by grace through faith. You don't have to do anything. But then James says, yeah, but let me show you my works by my faith. Titus bridges this together. Faith and practice, belief and behavior. The, um, the Pharisees were all about practice. They were all about behavior, but they did not have the faith and the belief. Okay. Um, there are people in the church today that might have the faith and the belief, but they don't have the practice or the behavior. We need both. Okay. All right. So Titus um, is kind of broken up into two different sections. We've got the intro in chapters um, one, one through four. Then we have the church organization in chapter one, where we have the qualifications of an elder and the characteristics of what false teachers look like. Um, this is where you have the mention of the circumcision party. Um, then we have the Christian conduct in chapter two to three, how older men and older women are to act in the church. One, I know one of the specific ones is that older women shouldn't be drinkers of much wine. They should be mentoring the younger women. Um, then we have, Christian conduct for the younger men and the younger women. Then we have the Christian conduct for the servants and the Christian conduct for the brethren. And then we have the conclusion in chapters 3, 12 through 15. Um, I added in some interesting information um, about Titus that I'm not going to go over. But if you're interested in learning a little bit more, I have some information for that on, um, on that. Um, all right. Moving on to Philemon. All right. So out of all... <laughs> Out of all that we study, and you know, you see all these inspiring Christian quotes and all this kind of stuff, um, you don't really see a whole lot of quotes from Philemon. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because Philemon is one of the most um, specific letters that we have, where a lot of um, the letter to Corinthians, like love is patient, love is kind. We can, he was talking to the church, but we can take it to today. Um, a lot of Philemon is specific about Philemon and his bond servant. So that's probably why you don't hear a lot about it. But the whole idea of this letter is all about reconciliation. So Paul wrote this letter around 62 AD 
um, while he was in prison following his voyage to Rome. So this was probably his first imprisonment. The letter was intended for reading to the entire church that met in Philemon's home in the Colossian community. So they are in around Colossae. Um, So during Paul's three years ministry in Ephesus, remember Ephesus was like the big evangelist city where a lot of people came to know the truth of God's word through the church of Ephesus. Um, it's, it was, it was the off, it was where you would spring off in evangelism, um, from Ephesus. So during Paul's three year ministry in Ephesus, Philemon was a wealthy person in the Colossian community. When he heard the gospel and was saved, he began serving Christ. He opened up his home for the group, for a group of Christians to meet there regularly. While he was doing that, at some point, um, um, Philemon had a bondservant named Onesimus. So at some point, Onesimus, one of Philemon's bondservants, fled from his home with Philemon to Rome. Before he left, he had possibly stolen some money or some property from Philemon, um, probably really put a hurting on his finances, something. Um, And so while Onesimus was in Rome, he encounters Paul. He had a road to Damascus meeting with Paul um, and became a Christian. So he's growing in Christ. He was a great help to Paul during his imprisonment. Um, And Paul actually wanted to probably keep Onesimus with him. However, um, Paul knew that Onesimus's wrongdoing against Philemon needed to be addressed. So he wrote this letter urging Philemon to approach appreciate the transformation that had occurred in Onesimus. Um, Paul asked Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not merely as a bondservant, but also as a beloved brother in Christ. Paul uses a strategy described by the Greek and Roman um, rhetoricians, rhetoricians, um, anyways, of that day, um, this is basically like when I went to college and I was an English major, I took a class called persuasive writing and you learn how to write and talk in a way that persuades your audience of what you want them to believe without saying, I think this and I think that this is what the news broadcasters do. They portray things in a negative light. I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, And as they use fear, they use all kinds of stuff to get you to believe the narrative without saying specifically, this is what we think. Okay. Anyways, Paul's basically using that. Um, He begins by building a report and a goodwill with the audience in verses 4 through 10. Then he lays out the facts in a way that will convince the mind of the intellect. And then finally, he appeals to the emotions of the audience. And so he's doing that to persuade Philemon to forgive and to reconcile um, and create peace with Onesimus. So it's kind of interesting. So the whole theme of Philemon is reconciliation. So we have the introduction in verses 1 through 3. We have Paul's love for Philemon in verses 4 through 7. We have Paul's counsel for Philemon in verses 8 through 21. And then we have the conclusion in um, verses 22 through 25. Um, The approach that Paul uses um, is to persuade appealing to his faith, empower Philemon to decide on whether to reconcile or not, 
And then um, he uses um, both of these things, using persuasion and empowering, is more effective than using force and pressure, pressuring someone to do something that they don't want to do. Um, So um, this whole idea of it reminds Philemon owes to Christ a debt that Philemon owes to Christ through Paul. From Paul's preaching, Christ saved him and forgave all his sins. He is in debt to Christ for giving his life, just as Onesimus um, Onesimus is in debt to Philemon. Philemon is in debt to Paul. Paul is in debt to Christ. We are all in debt to Christ. We should forgive because he first forgave us. So, kind of interesting. I didn't know all that. I just, Philemon is not one of those books that I typically go to. Um, It's kind of one of those neglected books. So I thought it was really, really interesting. So I hope you enjoyed that as well. All right, y'all. We are coming up on the one hour mark. We've got one book left and it's the best book of all. I mean, it's not the best book. I say that about all the books, but I really, really like Hebrews. If you're like me, and you like to get nerdy, you like to go deep in knowledge, you like to see the Old Testament and the New Testament, where the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament, Hebrews. Hebrews is where it's at. So, um, we're wrapping up our letters to Paul. The author of Hebrews is unknown. Um, It doesn't have the same structure as Paul's letters, um, I think that the reason that the the author is unknown to Hebrews is because God wanted to make it unknown. Um, he probably didn't want us to know if it was Peter or James or Jude or Paul. Um, so, anyways, the author of Hebrews is unknown. We do know that he knew Timothy. We know that based off of um, chapter 13, 23. But he was also not an eyewitness of Jesus. This is in chapter 2, 1 and 3. Um, and this letter was probably written before AD 70, which was when John wrote Revelation. So the, um, early manuscripts entitled this, um, entitled Hebrews to the Hebrews, which reflects the ancient assumption that it was written to the Jewish believers, but as well as Gentile believers who had been drawn to the Jewish religion. So basically, there were, kind of like Ruth, there were Gentile believers who came to faith in God through the Old Covenant. Then there were Jewish believers who had faith in God through the Old Covenant. Um, then these Jewish and these Gentile believers who had faith to God through the Old Covenant now have faith in Christ and the fulfillment of Him as Messiah. This is what this is addressing. Um, the Hebrew essentially believer. We do know that the author did know his readers because he said it mentions that he wants to see them again. This is mentioned in chapter 13, 19. Um, the author encourages faithfulness, love, and sound doctrine. He does this by carefully teaching the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, in the light of God's revelation in Jesus as Messiah and High Priest. So the whole theme of Hebrews is that there are two primary purposes. To encourage the believer to endure and to warn them not to abandon their faith in Christ. Okay? Um, the author shows superior the superiority. Uh, the author shows the superiority of Jesus and his new covenant over the angels, over Moses, over the old covenant priesthood, over the old 
um, covenant sacrificial system. Christians must not forsake the great salvation that Jesus has brought them. They need to hold firm by faith to the true rest found in Jesus, while also encouraging others to do the same in the church. Ultimately, the author's words of encouragement and exhortations are rooted in his teaching about Jesus. The Son of God became heavenly high priest who offered himself as a worthy sacrifice once for all, and he abandoned salvation. Um, he, oh, I'm sorry. He has obtained salvation for all who approach him in faith. Such faith perseveres until it's received the promise of eternal reward. That is the entire New Testament. That's the entire New Testament. Son of God becomes heavenly high priest, offers himself, meaning the heavenly high priest, meaning that the whole high priest, the whole point of the high priest was to enter into the Holy of Holies, which was not for anybody else. And he had to pour blood on the mercy seat of God. And through that blood, it would atone for all of Israel. That's what Jesus did. He entered into the Holy of Holies where he poured his blood on the mercy seat of God. He offered himself as a worthy sacrifice once for all the just for the unjust. And he obtained salvation for all who approach him in faith. And that faith brings forth an eternal reward an eternal blessing, an eternal inheritance um, that we will never really appreciate the value of until we see it firsthand so um hebrews is structured um in three different sections we've got the superiority of christ um that's in chapter one through eight we've got this where he's superior to the prophets he's superior to the angels he's superior to moses he's superior to the sabbath he's superior to the priests goes into all detail about that then we have christ's superiority of the new covenant and that's in 8 7 through 10 18 this is where he is better than any earthly priesthood he is better than the old covenant he is better than the animal sacrifices he is better than the daily offerings um essentially superior to all these things did the earthly priesthood work for that time yes it was a guardianship for that time christ is better did the old covenant work? Yes, it was perfect for that time. It was a guardian for that time until Christ came. Christ is better. Did the animal sacrifices work? Yes, it atoned for them temporarily until Christ came. Were the daily offerings good? Yes, they were perfect until we had the Holy Spirit to do the offering for us. Jesus Christ to do the offering for us in the new covenant. All right, and then we have the exhortations drawn from the superiority. This is in chapter 10, 19 through 325. We have the ability to have faith and believe in God now. We now have the ability to hope and endure all trials. We now have the ability to love and encourage others because of the superiority of Christ, because of the superiority of the new covenant. We now have these exhortations, the ability to do, to have faith, belief, hope, endure, love, and encourage. Okay? So, for Hebrews as a whole, it talks a lot about the high priest. How Jesus is high priest. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. So, I've got some um, some stuff for you to look at with that. It doesn't make sense 
in when you're looking in the Old Testament. Nobody has fulfilled this role besides one person in the Old Te- Old Testament. Um, and I'll get to him in just a second. Where you have prophets. <clears throat> a lot of times these prophets were Levites. A lot of times the prophets weren't Levites. They weren't always from the, the tribe of Levi. Priests were always from the tribe of Levi. Except for after... Um, the Babylonian exile, where they come back, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall. The priests were Macedonians. Is that the right word? I can't. Judah, Macedonia. Anyways, this was between the 400-year time period. Not all of them were Levi. And a lot of their um, lineage had been blurred up to where they didn't even completely know their lineage back then. Um, But generally, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And then we have King, the throne of David, this royal blessing that we talked about when we went through the Gospels um, that was inherited um, just by those from the tribe of Levi, uh, Judah. And that's what Jesus filled. Okay? Um, so we have these changes in the priesthood before the cross and to the cross. So Hebrews specifically talks about how Christ is a priest after after the order of Melchizedek. That's how he can be high priest is because of this. Um, not from the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. This is when Abraham is saving Lot. Lot is always getting himself into trouble. Abraham is always saving him. So Abraham comes in and saves Lot from these, there are these it was five and four. The four overcame the five and overcame Lot's um, kings and Gomorrah. And Lot was taken in and, and Abraham basically meets them and is like, hey, give them to me. And they do. Um, so he's rescuing Lot. He's on the way back because apparently Abraham was pretty intimidating in all his um, wealth that he had. And he meets a priest on the way back to his homeland. Um, named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a priest, and he was also a king. He's mentioned twice in the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Um, His name means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which means peace. Um, Some think it was where Jerusalem is now. Remember, this is before Israel was a nation. Um, They were just the Hebrews back then. Um, So, um, Melchizedek is like the son of God, where... um, the Christ of prophecy was to be both king and priest. Melchizedek's like the son of God where he is the priesthood. His priesthood was not determined by genealogy. This was before the Levitical priesthood was even established. We don't have a genealogy of Melchizedek. Jesus doesn't have a genealogy to tie him into the priesthood. Um, we ha- He has no recorded beginning or end. Jesus has no recorded beginning or end because he is God and he remains a priest continually. So I believe that uh, Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Jesus that met Abraham, but that's just my suspicions. So um, you got the Levitical priesthood, you got the Melchizedek priesthood. We've got imperfect priesthood, perfect priesthood, temporary priesthood, eternal priesthood, old order of priesthood, new order of priesthood, insufficient priesthood, sufficient priesthood, Deficient priesthood, model priesthood, earthly priesthood, royal heavenly priesthood, imperfect mediator, perfect mediator. This priest was a sinner. This priest is sinless. Under This priest was under the sentence of death. 
This priest broke the power of death. This priest um, was a descendant of Levi. This priest was a descendant of Judah, the kingly tribe. Um, this priest for Levitical was um, cannot reconcile man to God fully. This priest can reconcile God, man to God fully. This priest cannot represent God to man. This priest can represent God to man. This priest cannot remove the sin bearer barrier. This proof can remove. This priest can remove the sin barrier. This priest cannot. Um, being a uh, see. Sorry, I had to read that a little bit more closely. Um, so um, the Levitical priest cannot being a man lead to perfection. This priest ever after Melchizedek can being a man to perfection, being that he was a man that was perfect. Um, the Levitical priesthood is under condemnation of the law. The Melchizedek priesthood is fulfilled the requirements of the law. This is everything. If you're, especially if you're witnessing to a Jewish believer, if you're witnessing to even some Hebrew roots movement who think that we still need to um, obey the law in order to just the, the ordinances of the law, we all are led by the spirit Um the spirit is over the law. Um, so this is just really kind of interesting to kind of give you those types of thinking about what that means. And in Revelation, Jesus says that we are also kings and priests. We have received that inheritance through Jesus, where we will have a kingship, we will have a priesthood um, after the order of Melchizedek. So this is kind of part of the inheritance. So it's just really interesting to sort of consider these things, think about these things. Um, I'm going to wrap up because I know that y'all are tired. If you've made it this far, y'all, kudos. I don't even know if anybody listens to this anymore, but I'm recording it anyways, just in case. So next week, we will cover our second to last class. This will be the interpretive letters part three. These are the Hebrew epistles. Um, we have James, the brother of Jesus, first and second Peter, which was a disciple of Jesus, first, second, and third John, which was also a disciple of Jesus, and Jude, Jesus's brother. Um, we have two of Jesus's brother, two of Jesus's disciples in here, which is really, really cool. Um, and then we will wrap up our final week with Revelation, my absolute favorite. Oh, I'm so excited. So anyways, thank y'all for sticking by. I appreciate you. I love you. I hope you have a super blessed day. See you later.